Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Michael Ball. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Quite well known in the UK as an actor on the West End of London. Mm. You've been on Broadway twice in notable musicals in the last 15 years. Once 15 years ago in Aspects of Love, and now... 15 years later, returning in Andrew Lloyd Webber's latest production on Broadway, The Woman in White, playing the rather fun role of Count Fosco. fantastic role, yes, absolutely. And um, one it's quite surprising to find me, and I've, I've kind of made a career being, since Aspects of Love, or since before then, since the original cast of Les Mis, of being the young hero, the guy who gets the girl, the, the guy who walks off into the sunset and gets the big romantic number. And here I am playing... The evil fat bastard who is Count Fosco, who schemes, is funny, poisons people, and ends up with a rat. He doesn't <laughs> end up with a girl. So, well, he's he's a rather likable fellow at first blush. Of course, well, that's, but the, then. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and then you realise that this this man is the the brains behind the dastardly schemes that befall. Uh, uh, the three heroines of, of The Woman in White. And also on stage, probably 50 pounds to 100 pounds heavier than the real-life Michael at Ball. At least, <laughs> at least. And I had, so I have this process of going through um, uh, a big uh, makeup procedure, putting on a, a, a fake double chin and um, wearing a huge fat suit, which is it's tiresome to do, but when you actually are there looking at yourself in the mirror and you can't recognize yourself, the character just comes to life. So, And I've, I've never had this opportunity of, of playing such an extreme character before, someone so totally against type. Kind, kind of juicy, I guess. In every sense. <laughs> but, but there's something ironic about it, Michael, in that you were here 15 years ago yeah. in Aspects of Love where people saw you for who you are. But in contrast to England where you are a household name, a major recording star, major stage star, you're not as familiar to audiences mm. here. And perversely, you're gotten up in a fat suit so that if people go see the show and love you – and run into you on the street, they'll have no idea who you are. I know, it's career suicide, really, isn't it? <laughs> it, it but it was an opportunity I couldn't miss. Uh, I haven't been back for 15 years. I would have loved to. Um, the way that my career progressed in the UK and the opportunities to come over here just didn't coincide. Uh, I kind of carved out a career for myself making records and doing concerts and doing television and radio. And only went back into the theatre for a few kind of choice uh, parts. The first thing I did after um, Aspects with Passion, Stephen Sondheim's Passion, and specifically because I wanted to work with Steve. And that was probably five or six years after Aspects of Love. And then after that was, um, gosh, it must have been Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I'd always kept in with the theatre. I'd always enjoyed and recorded and... uh, carried the, the banner for, for musical theatre music, but to actually get involved with a theatre production and to commit that amount of time, because, you know, it's, it's at least a year out of your life. So going into Aspects of Love, you succeeded Michael Crawford in the role in London. No, in, in Woman in White. I... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I misspoke. In Woman in White, you yeah. succeeded Michael Crawford. And that was quite by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael had opened the show. Uh, I went to see the show in uh, December, December 29th, and he was out. It was he'd, he'd only, and that's very unusual for Michael. Uh, 
he had missed two shows. I saw the show. I really enjoyed the show. And you went just as a, as a bystander? Oh, just as a punter, because yeah. Maria Friedman is one of my best friends. I know everyone involved in the show. This was the first opportunity I'd had to see Andrew's new work. So. And she, of course, is the female lead. That's in the right. Show. And I loved it. I really loved the show. But cut to five weeks later, and um, I got a call from Maria on a Sunday saying, Michael hasn't been back since you came to see the show. He tried for a couple of days, wasn't well, left again, and I don't think he's going to be back for a long time, may not be back at all. And we're, we're kind of stuck. We need sort of some help. Do you think that you can... You, you would be interested in, in coming into the show? And I had a, a very full schedule. But I thought about it, and not for very long, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity that is so unusual, it's so surprising. I'm so flattered that they've asked me to do this uh, and that they had the faith in me to do it. I think in, in the UK it was quite a... It, there was an element of stunt casting um, in asking me to... Well, to, over to, there, because yeah. you are known for who Precisely. you are, the idea of you showing yeah. up in a fat yeah. suit is pretty surprising. Yeah. And and to not be the hero, to, to, as I say, play totally against type. The villain. The villain. And, God, they're the best parts. Everyone <laughs> says they are, and they really are. Uh, so I did it. I literally, from that phone call, 10 days later, I was on the stage doing the show. And... It was, I don't know, it was one of the, I won't say it was the easiest, but it, it fitted so, it was, it was a very quick process for me. Because I knew everyone, you kind of have a shorthand with them. I didn't go and see the show again, so my memories were kind of based on that one night, two months but previously. But you hadn't been watching it analytically, you were Not just watching it Not at all, I was watching fun. as a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watching, watching as a punter, as we say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so ten days later I was on, and it just fitted. It felt great, and it worked really well. Uh... I was then, I, I could only stay there for three months because I was doing uh, a, a big concert tour and some televisions and so on, and a new album being made. Uh, and then I, I was over here doing Patience at New York City Opera, which was the first thing that's brought me back onto the stage for 15 years. And still not sure if they were, were interested, if they were going to ask me to do Woman in White here. And then finally, they didn't know that they were 100% going to be able to do it. This was um, at what period in time? Sometime earlier this year? Earlier this year, in the summer. In yeah. the summer of this yeah, year? Yeah, in, in July. Uh-huh. And finally they said, we've got the green lights, the, the show is happening, and we'd love you to come and create the role on Broadway. And I felt such pride from that, because I did understand that it was stunt casting, kind of, in London. But that isn't the case here, uh, because as you as you were saying, I'm not known here. And, and also, Maria Friedman's not really known in this country. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and they, I think they took the. I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit big-headed to say it, but I think they ch- decided to choose who they wanted to be in the cast for for their abilities, as opposed to their ability to pull in. Uh, and put people on seats. And interestingly, there were Americans who were in the original cast in London when when it was first done. So there's always been a mix, even though the piece itself is a very English piece of theater. It was, as really is the case with anything Andrew Lloyd Webber does, Mm -hmm. he's looking for the people he feels are going to be the best people to do his that's parts. Absolutely, that's absolutely and right. you say it wasn't about either Maria Friedman or Michael Ball being box office choices here. It was about mm. the people he thought would yeah. do the role well. And I felt, I did feel very bad. And, and, and it's, it's not just Andrew, it's, it's Trevor Nunn who's, uh, who's not a stunt casting director. You know, he will do, he only does something that he actually believes in. And the producers, the American producers, to have faith, having seen what we did in London, to say, yes, this is the show we want to bring over here. 
Well, we've been a little bit putting the cart before the horse. Right. We've been talking about Count Fausco. We were talking about the, the show in, in London, but not really about the show itself, other mm. than the mention of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, in a very brief synopsis, why don't you, why don't you give us the, 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 the elements of the story of The Woman in White? Well, it's, it's based on a Wilkie Collins novel that was um, a phenomenon when it was uh, released in the 1860s. He was kind of the, the protege of, of Dickens and took over. Dickens used to write serialized novels in magazines that then became the usual. And he wrote the next one, Wilkie Collins. When, when Dickens finished, Wilkie Collins took over. Kind of what we would call in this country cliffhangers. That's exactly what they are, yeah. And this was not just a British but a worldwide phenomenon, this, this novel. And uh, it, uh, it follows um, the lives of two sisters, uh, who are brought up in, in Cumbria with uh, different fathers, the same mother. And it's it, um, there are so many elements to the story, but it, it looks at, at the progression through their lives through an un, unfortunate marriage, the love of the same man, uh, uh, a penniless art teacher, the, the younger, more beautiful and rich daughter being married to a very evil, deceitful member of the nobility, and his friend, Count Fosco, who uh, conceives this plan to get the money from this girl and to live for them, to live happily ever after, and for the girls. But it's a good old-fashioned melody. It's an old, yeah, exactly. And there is one mysterious figure, the woman in white, who keeps appearing, who has a secret, who bears an uncanny resemblance to the younger daughter. But, but she is neither one of these two sisters that you've just mentioned. Uh, or is she? Or is she? Or is she? I mean, that, that's that's. It, I, well, I, let's it, not get it, too far. Exactly, into the it's kind of like like Psycho. I think. When, when, remember when Psycho was released and Alfred Hitchcock said, "Do not reveal the ending of this movie uh, to your friends." Well, it's we don't want to know what happened to the to Sweeney Todd's wife either before exactly. we see Sweeney Todd. Exactly. So, so it's one of those that that. Uh, and I, as I said, when I went as a punter to just see it, and I didn't know the story, I hadn't read the book, I was completely fascinated by the story, and I think the way that it it does unfold to an audience does capture you and the the surprises and twists and turns that occur along the road it's great is well, it a story a, that's retained its popularity in england i mean in general is it known or is this really a rediscovery it's i think it's it's a rediscovery there have been movies there was a recent tv movie there uh people people do know the title but kind of like you you, you may know the the the, the title just to, to some very famous but don't actually know the story and and it's a surprise so but it's the kind of novel I think that that the, and the kind of story that I think Andrew takes to best. It's a gothic romance with uh, high drama and and a bit of fun as well thrown in. Well, there's there's, there's mystery, there's romance, and yep. you said a bit of fun. Most of the fun seems to be with Count Fosco with, with your character. I know. Again, the first time I've actually been able to do comedy like this. You're, you're simultaneously the bad guy and the comic relief. And the comic relief. I just need a tap number at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> have you spoken to him about I've it? I have. I've begged or a dream ballet, something. <laughs> you, you had mentioned a moment ago something about a white rat. Yeah, and the, well, which is well, a very well, funny the, scene. The, the, the character of Cat Fosco, he's he's a doctor, but his he has a predilection for animals, caged animals. So he travels with his menagerie of of birds and mice and rats. And in true theatrical tradition, these are real animals on the stage. And in true theatrical fashion, they upstage me every night. We had a, an incident the other night during the seduction scene where the two cockatoos wouldn't shut up mm -hmm. until I went and shouted at them on stage. <laughs> um, but he, he always has a little mouse, a real mouse, 
secreted somewhere about his person. And then the, 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 the big number for Count Fosco in, in, towards the end of the second act, where he explains his ethos, I think, that he can get away with anything. And it ends up being an aria at the end sung to a white rat who scampers from one hand to the other and all over my body. And over your, your back and your head and yep. all around. All, it's great. Which and simultaneously has people laughing and cringing. Absolutely. Because we do find who the phobics are in the audience pretty oh, fast. I, I've scene. got friends who won't come and see the show or at that point will close their eyes and have never <laughs> seen that bit. We had a problem as well. We, I've got two rats here. Um, Beatrice, who's the lovely, furry, sweet girl, and Charlotte, who... Do you, have you ever seen the film Austin Powers? Sure. Mm-hmm, and sure. Uh, he has a, 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 a the cat, cat called Yes, Dr. Big- Evil has the cat. Has Do- Mr. Bigglesworth. Yeah. Well, this is what Charlotte looks like. She's completely hairless mm. and is quite the most dis- disgusting thing you've ever seen. So w- w- Beatrice was ill the other day, so I had to have the understudy Charlotte on. And I, you can also you get a reaction. When I, when I take out Charlotte, uh, Beatrice, the ordinary-looking rat, you get a, oh, oh, bless, you know, because it's sweet and it's furry, but it's a bit cringy. When I got out Charlotte, it was, oh, oh! <laughs> and it, they, they were appalled that this thing was allowed anywhere near me, let alone crawling over my face. And it was, it, she is disgusting. Well, I'm happy that I saw Beatrice then, oh, being the did. cuter yeah. of the two. <laughs> yes, saw, I did. You saw cute Bee. D- does Beatrice ever forget what she's supposed to do and go Every, wandering all away? All the time, yeah. I mean, I, and the, the whole thing is improvised. And it's, it's, you make it up depending on, you know, she's trained to go from one hand to the other. She's never done it properly in her life. She never <laughs> will. So you, you, you improvise the whole thing. And she's not, the, the worst actually is the mice who are incontinent. Hmm. Um, sorry to have to share that with you. <laughs> we have gone off on a tangent know, here about theatre that's fascinating. A tiny mouse. How much wee can a tiny mouse produce? About a pint. And when the mouse opening night, it just, obviously nerves, it just went all over. <laughs> so I have disinfectant wet wipes secreted all over the stage. And you walk around with this mouse in your pocket, do you? Um, yeah. But it, I, I've had a plastic-lined pocket, oh. so it's all right. <laughs> we should change the subject. Well, I was going to say, the, the glamour of theater High must art. be overwhelming <laughs> to our, our listeners. So, so, so let's come back to, you know, you, you, we, we've talked about these two shows with Andrew Lloyd Webber, who yeah. to certainly our listeners is someone who is this grand and somewhat mysterious mm. figure. What's the experience been like working with Andrew both 15 years ago and, and then coming into this show? <laughs> It, it's it's a, it's always a fascinating experience. What Andrew does know how to do is surround himself with the right people, great directors, designers, uh, sound technicians, cutting edge people. Um, he's, I mean, it's not a walk in the park. He's uh, uh, mercurial. He's um, an absolute perfectionist. If he wants something, he will insist on it. And when something is right, then. The world couldn't be a lovelier place. If something is wrong, then you do feel nervous and anxious. And uh, um, I, I love his work. I love the, the whole process of, of working around him. There's a kind of a circus, isn't there? There's a media circus that surrounds something that, that new that he does. He has a, many detractors um, who are instinctively detractors, Not, I, I don't think based on his work, uh, which when, when you look at, going right back to Superstar and Evita and Cats and, and so, whether you like them or loathe them they're, they're, they're all very very different kinds of shows um, and there's 
I, I think we, we call it in, in, in uh, the UK a tall poppy syndrome. When someone is enormously successful, you want to cut them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Andrew suffers from that syndrome, that, that people want to denigrate his work. Well, there are, there are people who say, well, how can you use the name Sondheim and Lloyd Webber in the same sentence? You've worked with, with both. Yeah. Any similarities, any great differences between Stephen Sondheim and They share a birthday. They, yeah, that's one of the great <laughs> ironies. Well, that's that's <laughs> a good one. They do. They share a birthday. Uh, I, are they similar? Yes, they're both intensely clever people. Uh, uh, you know, they are, they are brilliant. I, I've been hanging out with Steve while I've been here. Um, they write very differently. They have a... a totally different way of, of of working and approach to work um you mean in the creative process mm. as, as you're doing the actual writing yeah mm-hmm. uh i mean the big difference of course is steve writes music and and lyrics mm-hmm. so it's entirely his baby um andrew relies on to to a great extent on uh the match with his lyricist mm-hmm. uh which has been more successful in some cases than others uh but they are, as I say, the similarities are they're inc- incredibly creative, talented men um, who are interested in furthering this art form, and both have been very successful in doing that. Speaking of furthering the art form, um, this is not your direct responsibility, but you act in this environment every day in the show. The scenery, the set, mm. it's unlike anything that's ever been really done on Broadway Absolutely. in the sense that everything is... Visual yeah. projections, yeah. video projections, yeah. not actual set pieces, yeah. save for the occasional tree or whatever. Mm. Uh, it's uh, And it was one of the things that fascinated me when I first went to see the show. Um, I remember talking to Maria about it. She was trying to explain it, and I, I, I couldn't get what she was this saying. This is before you went to see it. This is before I went uh-huh. to see it. And she said, it truly is amazing when it works. And there were glitches in London. Um, and I... I, I th- First of all, it staggers me when, when, when I read people say, oh, I got motion sickness. You know, I think they're just looking for something to criticize because it, it doesn't give you that. It's, no, of course it's, not. It's, it's an extraordinary visual feast. Um, and it, it, it enables you to tell a story uh, in, in an almost cinematic way. You can go from scene to scene to scene without having lumbering set changes or being stuck in the same set. So you can transform from... Well, the, literally, the, there are tracking shots that yeah. seem to go out of a room downstairs and up and yeah. outside and swoop and in the windows. And then from one village into another village, okay. into the streets of London, down the embankment. For our listeners, kind of if you envision the opening of The Sound of Music with Julie Andrews, that famous shot on the mountainside, yeah. you know, just yeah. zooms away. Yeah. Or Barbara Streisand at the Statue of Liberty in Funny Girl. You know, that, that kind of a, a tracking yes, shot. Yes, exactly. Now, the set is really just a five or six curved walls mm-hmm. and these video projectors shine these scenes whether mm-hmm. it be an interior and exterior which means you can change in an instant from inside to outside from yeah. forest to but, city but, whatever. but very cleverly the, the back wall is able to come Downstage, onto the stage right. and onto a revolve and is curved so it, it changes so it, it changes the perspective of everything right. um i i think that that what bill dudley has done and when you bear in mind that this is the first time it has been done um i think it's brilliant uh to be that brave it would have been the easiest thing to have just gone okay we've got a victorian melodrama um let's just put it in solid sets and it would work fine but to do this it gives the the whole thing a, a, a such a special quality but, but as an actor yeah. there's an interesting thing that happens you always hear stories about people that when when they get out of the rehearsal room and they get into costume and onto mm-hmm. the set that there's 
there's more to work with. Now, in your case, costume-wise, you got a lot to work mm. with because it changes you. But you're in really a very neutral space mm. as an actor. Are you even aware of this scenery no, as you're it, playing in it? This show is all about the interaction between people. It's looking into each other's eyes and believing our characters and knowing our stories and following that. What is going on around us? Because you're not opening doors. You're not... Uh, you know, well, do, we do, we, you do. You mine and, and, some and, things. And, uh, no, there are actual oh, doors oh, are, set true. into there the thing, some... which then have projected onto them right. the actual door it. itself. But I, I, I do know exactly what you're saying. It's it's, um, and that's all. That's the only thing I can I can I can answer. I was when I did in London, literally thrown on. Um, I, I'd gone on to the set twice before my opening night uh, for a, 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 fo- a quick walkthrough to see where my entrances and exit were and where I stand, and then for, for a, a hasty dress rehearsal with the cast. And it never occurred to me for a moment. There are scenes, my big scene in, in, in my uh, salon, I have the, the cages of animals and the seats and the, the, the chairs, and there's a grand piano that comes on. But by and large, as you say, it is this, this sort of empty set that looks magnificently full because rooms or, or, or scenery or houses are, are projected and moving. From, from the background. audience's perspective. Mm. Yeah. yeah. From our perspective, we can't see that. Uh, we're aware it's there. And we have to technically, and uh, it, it, it is quite limiting because in order to be lit properly, you can't be too near to the walls because a light shining directly, a spotlight shining It'll directly wash it out. Will, will wash it all out. And in order for the projections to work Effectively, if you're walking and the projection is moving, they has to be have to be synchronized. Right, right. Uh, but that's something you learn very quickly in the technical rehearsals, so it becomes second nature. But as an actor, mm. with many of the scenes being done on what's essentially a bare stage mm. with no visual landmarks around you, no walls, no mm. chairs, none, none of that, is that disorienting to you? No, it could because it truly is about. You, we know where we are. Uh-huh. You know, you, you, you never lose when, sight when, of that. You know, you, when you, you you start your show. You know when you're entering, what you're entering into, and it's it's all about the relationships with people. It's all about how you're interacting with everyone on stage, not about am I in the right place. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been we've been dropping some of the names of people you've worked with. We've yeah. certainly mentioned Lord Lloyd Webber. We've mentioned Stephen Sondheim. I think we've only briefly touched upon Trevor Nunn, who seems to be a through line in your career. Yeah. But let, let's go back because it seems that. What really launched you was was Les Mis. Absolutely, it was it was almost my, my practically my second job. I was uh, I'd been cast in the Pirates of Penzance, um, the, the, the Joe Papp version, but not for, not was it not a London, London production. No, it was, in it was Manchester, yeah. the first out of town in the UK, and they'd cast. I'd, everyone knew about this show that the RSC were trying to mount. Royal they, Shakespeare Company, yeah, Royal Shakespeare Company's Les Misérables. Mm-hmm. We thought, well, that will die a thousand deaths <laughs> won't it um, and they'd cast everybody yeah, because when you when you hear big French musical yeah. at that time you went huh <laughs> and especially they don't fit <laughs> especially associated with Royal Shakespeare yeah, Company yeah, yeah. but um, but we did know that Cameron McIntosh was going to be involved it was a co-production and I'm saying all this we know I'm just out of drama school I don't know anything about anything I don't so know who anybody in, is you're in your early 20s at this time yeah yeah uh-huh. I was 22 uh-huh. I'd uh, uh, I knew of I worshipped, actually, is probably the better way of saying it, Trevor Nunn, because my family lived near Stratford on Avon when he ran the Royal Shakespeare Company in the early days. And uh, I remember at the age of 14 going to see his incredible um, version of King Lear with Sir Donald Sindon and Dame Judi Dench and Michael Williams. And it was just 
marvellous. And he also, in that same season, had done a musical version of the Comedy of Errors. Uh, so, I, I'm, so I, and I used to go all the time to see his production. I just thought he was brilliant. So um, Cameron came and saw me. The only part they hadn't cast was Marius. Cameron came and saw me in uh, in Manchester in this Pirates of Penzance, asked me to come down and audition and, and meet with uh, Andrew and... Uh, sorry, <laughs> Andrew. Uh, Al, uh, Alain Boublil and Claude Michel Schoenberg, the writers, and with uh, Trevor Nunn and everybody. I've never been so frightened in my life. <laughs> and I, I got the role. And it was one of the most amazing rehearsal periods in this basement at the at the RSC where none of us knew what we had. It, the show wasn't written. It, would, it was about half written when we started rehearsals. It was a 12-week rehearsal period. And we'd be there working on, on things that, and, and, and new songs would come in. I remember when Con Wilkinson first received Bring Him Home, The Prayer. And it was myself, Francis Raphael, and Colm in the room and in, in walked Claude Michel Schoenberg and he played it and Colm then sang it and I mean it just took my breath away when the cast first heard it I remember um, he, sang, he sang the song and there was silence in the room, there was big cast absolute silence in the room and then a guy at the back put his hand up and went Trevor, I know you said this show was about God you didn't say he'd be singing the 11th hour number <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was wonderful but we ended up with a show that was four and a half hours long mm. And our first preview, Saturday, when we had a matinee, <clears throat> we came to the end of the, the afternoon show as, as the cast is coming forward as ghosts singing, do you hear the people sing? And we could hear in the wings, ladies and gentlemen, this is your half-hour call, <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> and so and it, it was back-to-back. So we then had to do all those cuts. We opened to dreadful re- reviews. This was at the RSC. It was scheduled for an 11-week run. And we all hoped it would transfer to the West End. But we literally opened to the worst reviews you've ever heard or ever read. And Cameron felt so strongly about the show and the groundswell from the audience. We'd had the worst reviews. We thought that was it. They were queuing around the block that you couldn't get on the, on the phones to, to, to book a ticket. Mm. There was a magic happening. Still at the RSC. Still at the RSC. Mm-hmm. And 11 weeks later, we moved into the Palace Theatre, the most beautiful theatre in London, where Woman in White is currently running. And... It just it it it, it I, I, it's difficult to explain the impact that it was having on audiences and on the theatre, uh, and as you, you know it's still running in London. It's it's just had its twenty year anniversary, and there's never been a show on Broadway that's run even eighteen. No. The first show that will hit that mark in January will be The Phantom, be Phantom of the Opera. Which yeah. was the show I did after Les Mis, uh-huh. so I've, I've been involved in some quite good shows. But you, know, you, you cited uh, an 11 o'clock number, but in fact in Les Mis, uh, you pretty much had an 11 o'clock number yeah, yeah. In, yes, in, the, I do. in the show. Yeah. Um, we ought to let our listeners hear it. Do you want to just set it up for us? It's, uh, it's a song called, which nearly got cut from the show, a song called Empty Chairs and Empty Tables. And it's where Marius has been rescued by Jean Valjean from from the barricades. All of his friends have died fighting for what they believe in, but he was saved by the uh, adopted father of the woman that he loves, and he sings about the passing of his friends. Michael Ball from the London cast recording of Le Mis, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. Michael that, Ball. As I was saying, that, that, yeah. that song nearly got cut out got cut. from the show. Did you, did you have to go to Schoenberg and Mubliel and to, to I, Trevor I, Nunn I, I, and I, I, say, please? Absolutely. Um, bear in mind, I'm, I'm, I'm this green kid. 
Uh, but 20, 22 I'm, I'm years 22 old. 22 years old, but I knew how good this song was and how important it was to. Uh, but it was, also your, it was also your song. And it's my song. Yeah. Um, but th- because of the transfer to the West End, because of running times, they were trying to find places to cut. And I was hearing a conversation. They said, well, we could actually take away the whole of. Uh, empty chairs then you just see Marius in the hospital and we cut straight to the wedding and and I went excuse me (laughs) then I'd have to leave the show because you you can't do that to the character you can't do that to the audience Um, there's no payoff for them and I think they were just hypothesizing and and they absolutely agreed it wouldn't be so who who made the decision then to keep it ultimately Um, is that Trevor Nunn it, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And well, actually, I, I would say Cameron. Cameron was the one who was pushing for the cuts. Ah. And, I mean, Trevor would have kept it at four and a half hours long, I think, if he'd had his way. Um, uh, but Cameron was the one with the commercial eye, saying ah. we, we, what we have to do. An audience cannot be expected. A cast cannot be expected to perform a show, a show this long. Um, but finally, he said, absolutely, we can't. Well, what was this. the ultimate running length when all the cuts were made? I think we were at three hours ten. Three hours fifteen, something, and that's like the way that. it actually played in London and mm. transferred to New York yeah. at that length. Yeah, which is quite long for a Broadway oh, show. Enormously, Woman in White's roughly two forty-five, two forty. Yeah, yeah, two forty. Yeah. Now, we talked briefly earlier about your recording career, and obviously, you had this foundation from Les Mis. How quickly did you launch? Your solo career did this immediately do it? No, did, was it, it after you did Phantom? No, it was after, after aspects. It was aspects of love that, that created. I didn't. It didn't occur to me I could have a, a recording career until I released the single of Love Changes Everything in the UK, and it went to number one. Now, this is not a usual occurrence for a, 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 in these day, this day and age, or in that day and age, fifteen years ago, for a, a, a song from a show to go out and become a hit. Uh, a national hit and because of, of of it being a hit and because of the interest that sparked in myself and and um because as we all know theater is a, is a is is received by a, f- a very small percentage of the population if you're then going into people's houses on the radio in the on television you know doing the chat shows and all the rest of it then you you go to a bigger public so when i came back from doing aspects on Broadway, I was offered a recording deal, and uh, I, I kind of hit a cross. I had, I had a choice: I could either just stay in the musical theatre world. I was asked to, to do a number of shows when I came back, or I had this opportunity of doing what, which was a dream of mine, of making records, of doing concerts, of doing television shows, and so on. And I thought, well, if I don't try, I'm never going to know if it's going to work. And it did, you know. I. I then the first album was a, a number one, and the, the, the concert tour sold out. And I kind of I got my own TV sh- uh, series, networked, and it, it kind of opened up a whole new world for me. And I never turned my back on the theatre. I was always heavily involved in uh, the promotion of musical theatre, but the actual commitment of going right, I'm going to be now doing this role for a year. Uh, kind of stopped until until passion came along, and you actually at one point uh, represented England in the Eurovision well, Song was, Contest. Yeah, well, this was the big the big uh, kick, I think, into um, into the recording. Can career. you explain what the Eurovision, well, the Eurovision Song is. Contest is a ghastly thing? <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's really you a did lot very of fun. well in it, but it was I, ghastly. Sorry, I, it is ghastly, and 
I did do very well, but I was I was approached by the BBC to 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 be the British entry, and which means that you you find eight songs which you perform on, which was then our biggest chat show every uh, every week for eight weeks, and the nation then chooses which song you'll go forward to represent the United Kingdom overseas at the Eurovision Song, because every country in Europe... So it's like an international American idol competition. That's exactly right. Um, And I thought to myself, people saying, you can't do this, Michael. You know, this this is not cool. I thought, well, you know, it could be. First of all, it gets people hearing me, people seeing me doing something I've never done before, and hearing me song sing songs that are from a different genre. And, um, and it's also a guaranteed eight weeks employment. <laughs> there is always that. They did make me enough or I couldn't refuse. <laughs> so I, 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 I thought, what the hell, I'll do it. And I ended up doing this. And I came second. What you have to the way the, the way the voting system works, or everyone performs their songs. There's like 30 songs or something. And then each nation then votes. Uh, they have a, a, a 12 marks in total to give. Uh, 12, 10, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And they then vote for which song supposedly they think is the best, bearing in mind the politics in Europe, um, which is all, <laughs> which is what it's based on. Actually, you know, the they, they, countries that have a the a, voting is really nationalism. It's not uh, any aesthetic judgment. So I was I was running. It was neck and neck between myself and Ireland, and Ireland never hurt anybody. And <laughs> the British, I'm afraid, we do have sometimes a bad reputation abroad, and Cyprus were the last nation to vote, and they gave all their points to Ireland and none to me. So mm. I came second. Uh. And uh, <laughs> it was an extraordinary night. I, I would never do it again, but I had a fantastic time. But it was this springboard then to 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 en- entering the, the, the pop and rock world. And what was the song that ultimately won for you? Uh, it was a song called One Step Out of Time. <laughs> it was, it's a terrible pop song, not, not, which I not, still perform. Not not a show tune at all. Not in the slightest. No, it's a really cheesy old pop tune, <laughs> which I still perform in my concerts and that's, rock it up and send it. That's up. perfectly all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, what you choose to perform is interesting because I saw your. I believe it's your most recent album. You're covering songs by David Bowie and yeah. Queen. Yeah. And what do you what do you look for I when look you're for deciding what to really do? Really simple. I look for a great song. Um, I've I've released twelve albums now. And uh, I'm not a singer, so I, I do write, but not pr- prodigiously and not brilliantly either. You know, I dabble. So maybe one or two songs on an album will be uh, self-penned. So I look for, for other songs, and my record company came and said, well, what do you want this next album to be about? And I said, just music, just music that I loved listening to, that, that I either grew up with or, or listen to now. And... The songs that I, I chose on this album are kind of theatrical. You think of, of Freddie Mercury and Queen. I mean, that's theatrical to it. It's Certainly extreme. David Bowie who's David always Bowie, had a heavy absolutely. theatrical orientation. Yeah. But depending on which character he's being mm-hmm. at which point in his career. So all of these songs, uh, the link, and there, there's some kind of country songs on there as well. Now, the songs that leap out from, from, from shows, Broadway tunes, are ones that have great melodies and great lyrics that have a character, that have a point, that tell a story, that that uh, create an emotional response in an audience, as do the best classic songs, the best pop songs, the best the best songs ever written. There's no delineation between them. Well, before we move on to, to some of the other aspects of um, 
what you've been doing in your career, we should go back and play the song that you cited as really launching this whole part of your career. Sure. Love changes everything from aspects of love. Yeah. Chatting today on Downstage Center with Michael Ball, who's currently appearing in The Woman in White on Broadway, and that song, Love Changes Everything. Before we went on the air, you were very specific that we play that version, not the cast version. Why? Well, because the the song is the theme that runs through Mm -hmm. the entire um, show. Aspects of Love. Aspects of Love. And uh, and, and the cast album is is literally what music appeared on the stage. And the song... um, opens the show it opened with me standing center stage with a character sat on the chair who turns out to be julietta but the audience don't know who she is with her back to me at a railway station and i sing love changes everything but it it doesn't have an ending it segues then into the story uh-huh. and um the, the big ending comes at the end of act one but it's only a tiny portion of the uh, song and again at the end of, of act two and you hear the big b flat again but it's only a portion and i think to, to, to get the whole song, I think you need to hear the, the version that was actually written before uh, before the show was. And that version then was the pop hit version. And That's right. Came number yeah. one on the charts in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Did it play in this country? Uh, that song. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that I, I, exact it, version of it. Yes, yeah. yes. People, should, I, I think so. I don't know to be honest, but I mean it's been covered by loads of people. I, mean, uh-huh. uh, I know Michael Crawford's done it. Sarah Brightman's done it. Um, Everybody in the cast of Woman in White have come up to me and said they've sung it at one point or another. Before we went on the air, Michael, we were also talking about the fact that um, you come back to New York. You've been coming back to New York once a year at the behest of the BBC yeah. to do an annual program yeah, called, I have, I have called Ball on Broadway. Ball, uh, ball over Broadway. Over Broadway. Ball okay. over Broadway. This is the best job anybody could ever have wanted. It's fantastic. Once a year, they've... BBC fly me out, they put me in a lovely hotel, and they buy me tickets to go and see all the brand new musicals on on Broadway. I then go and talk to the stars, talk to the producers, talk to the writers, talk to the critics, and and it, it's turned into um, uh, six half-hour programmes. So I get to see all the new shows, usually in the pre-Tony season. We normally do it around... Um, March, April, May time. Sounds kind of like our job here, talking with you. I know. But, <laughs> well, I, but imagine they were sending you to the West End. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> and you get a well, fantastic and, and we're going to talk to management about that. <laughs> yeah, but but you tell me, what, what is your perception when you, you come over mm. once a year? You obviously understand what's going on on the English stage. Mm. What, what's your perception and what do you communicate back to audiences in London about what you're seeing here? Well, first of all, I will uh, – I don't – I'm not a critic. You're not a commentator. I'm You're really a, commentator. a presenter. I'm a presenter. I'm a critic. I let everyone else do the talking. Um, I'll ask, I ask the questions. I will maybe prompt them and lead them in a certain direction. I'll play the music from the show. And I let an audience make up its mind, having listened to the writers, having listened to the critics, having, having a balanced opinion, and listening to the music. They make their own minds up. I have my own opinions, obviously, about, about what I'm seeing. But I don't think, you know, it, it's... Because I'm I'm part of the community as opposed to a commentator on the community, I think it would have been wrong to. But do you have any say in in what shows you focus on oh, or absolutely. the producers? So let's talk from the positive perspective mm. of the work that you've seen over the mm. past few years. What is it that you've seen on Broadway that you really find appealing and and perhaps distinct from the kind of material that gets to be seen over in the West End? The one show which I am amazed and thrilled has been such a hit here is Light in the Piazza. 
um, it, it was. I think it helped that it was under the the Lincoln Center banner, because there, there's a there's a, a sort of benchmark of quality. I think mm-hmm. isn't there, that comes from from that center, having worked there. Uh, and it probably wouldn't have gone on as a, just a, a straight commercial venture. It was one of the most beautiful and th- if, if not the most beautiful uh, show I, I, I've seen staged. Um, with, with extraordinary layered, subtle, clever performances, exquisite music. I, I was I was knocked out by it. I didn't think, and I saw it just after it had opened. Or, I beg your pardon. I saw it just before it had opened, in preview, and I didn't anticipate that the, 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 the public would get behind it as they have. I was delighted about that. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm going back. I remember seeing the producers just after it first opened and thinking, "This is one of the best nights I've ever spent in a theatre." I uh, was a huge fan of the of the, the movie, and like a lot of people, had heard the hype. And I'm thinking, it can't live up to mm-hmm. the hype. It um, cannot be as funny as they're saying. Literally from the downbeat and the overture was springtime for Hitler. I don't think I stopped laughing. I, I, I and I came out going. Well, that's what theatre's all about. Now, how about one show that actually originated in the UK, mm-hmm. not in the theatre, but on television, Monty Python's Spamalot, oh, based on the film, of yeah. course. Yeah, well, it, and I'm a, 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 a nut, almost, when it comes to, to, the, to, to the, uh, the Python movies, more than the TV shows, mm-hmm. but, but to the movies. And uh, uh, Holy Grail and Life of Brian are two of the funniest films ever made. And I thought, well, what, how the hell can they turn this into a musical? And I went, and it's not the movie, it's not anything like, you know, you have the, the, the set pieces from the movie, but it was just a great, another great way to spend an evening in, in the theatre with, with sublime performances. What I have noticed is a love here of pastiche, a love of sending up the genre of musicals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, in a way, it kind of makes it difficult for people who are doing the real thing <laughs> to, to be taken seriously. Because, um, I mean, I also went, I, I went a few weeks ago. Ron Bomer, who plays Percival Glide in, in our show, was doing Forbidden Broadway. Mm-hmm. And so I went along to see it. And God help us when they get to, to, to do Woman in White because we're ripe for pastiche. But there, there is a love of that. Even things like Dirty Rotten Scandals, they love breaking that fourth wall and including the audience, and having people from the... You have the usherette coming through or people talking directly to the audience. Um, so so that there, there is a, a love for that. There's a love of, of feel-good froth and... Uh, which is why, as I was saying before, why I was amazed and thrilled that, that Piazza did so well because it, 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 it's proper musical theatre. It's, it's telling a wonderful story and... Uh, in, in a in a beautiful way, um, but the big hits—I don't know if you agree—they seem to be send-ups of of this beloved genre. Many are in in the next edition of uh, Ball Over Broadway mm. uh, when the BBC has you do it again. How yeah. will you treat your show, Woman in White? I'm going to enjoy interviewing myself <laughs> very much. Uh, You'll ask the tough questions yeah, nobody else yes, would dare exactly. ask, <laughs> and I'll I'll hit myself for asking them. What, what, what would you what, what would you ask yourself? Oh, that's a very good way. <laughs> How much are you getting paid? <laughs> Not enough, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, that's a curious one because we're talking about it now. I'm, I'm, I'm scheduled at the moment to stay until March, uh, and then we'll be we'll be making the next series. And I suppose I have to include Woman in White, mm. and it will be very difficult to 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 be objective. I, I won't be. I won't be. I should say, look, this was the show I've 
just been starring in on Broadway, and it's an unabashed commercial. <laughs> <laughs> One show, unfortunately, you will not have to cover. It's about to close, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, yes, which has had a good is. run here in New York. Yeah, not bad. I mean, in um, in the UK, it, it was, it's was it been the longest-running show at the London Palladium. Ever. Really? And we should say for our audience that you originated yeah. the role of Caracticus yeah. Pot. Yeah. Pot. Caracticus Pot. Caracticus Very difficult. Caracticus Pot <laughs> in that in, yeah. in England. Yeah. And, of course, on this channel, we've been playing songs from it, which is you singing. It's, it's not right. the New York cast. That's it's the right. London cast yeah. that we've been playing. Yeah. I had the best time doing that. Um, it was proposed to me. I, I, I met with... Adrian and Barbara Brock, Adrian Noble, who's the director, Barbara Broccoli, who everyone knows as the producer of the Bond movies. And they said that they were, they were going to put on Chitty. And I, I loved the film when I was a kid. I've never done musical comedy before. I mean, although he's this eccentric, mad uh, uh, character, he's, he's actually the, probably the sanest person throughout the entire show. He's kind of the, 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 the core of the thing, the centre of the thing mm-hmm. that... that that, that keeps it on its rails, um, and we we had a tremendous hit in London, absolutely tremendous, and it was it, it's a bit of fun. I mean, it, it's one of those shows that you you can't enter it, as an actor. You can't enter into too seriously. Uh, you, you need to know where you're going and 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 stay out of the way of the car. Yeah, <laughs> but it is. It's about you know. It, it, it's not covering deep issues in a deep way. It's a bit of fun, and um, it hasn't been a huge success here. I mean, it's done. It's done well, but it, it, it closes at the end of December, and I think that, that that's a shame because it it it's a fantastic family. Some show. people have commented to me that they thought that there, there were elements of the show when it was constructed for the stage that modeled a little more on the English pantomimes, mm. and that's I a think, style that's recognizable yeah. in England and didn't necessarily play here. Yeah, I the think henchman that's and, right. and yeah. even the child catcher that these are more yeah. figures, even if out of the movie. Yeah. A little bit different. Yeah. So, and, 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 and an audience's response is kind of since from being kids when we were all taken to see pantomimes, we're programmed how to respond. So, you know, every night you get boos and hisses when you see the, uh, uh, the child catcher and the baron and the baroness. And um, American children are told to go to the theater and behave and, and behave, put your hands in your yeah. lap well, and this only is what laugh happened. When I went to see the show in May, uh, I came over and it was packed and full of kids and not a sound from them. And I'm going, come on, guys, it's, you know, it's chitty. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're in the back of the house hissing yeah. and everybody's saying, on, go, who is this man? Be, be quiet. quiet. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think it's a shame it hasn't had, uh, hasn't had the, the, the success here. So the uh, demeanor in, in British theatres is, is different than in, in this country then? For something like that, certainly. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, pantomime is all about audience participation. Comes to other musicals, to, to other shows, uh, and um, I think American audiences are far more likely to let themselves be known and uh, make their presence felt. Well, let's hope that American audiences just flock to see Woman in White oh, currently so. running at the Marquee Theater here in New York, starring Michael Ball as uh, the Count, Count Fosco. Michael, thanks so much for being it's with us today really at Downstage Center. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.